0: Today I have a truly special guest, Waylon Lewis, who I've admired for years and have recently become friends with. He is the founder of Elephant Magazine, Elephant Journal, you might know it as. He really walks the talk. He is a long life Buddhist. He is known as a tree hugger and a change maker in the world that he lives in, in Boulder, but also in the world at large. He is a huge environmentalist, biking everywhere. So he bikes only 365 days a year, he doesn't own a car. And then he just really is a person of inquiry, community driven and bringing mindful life into everyone's world. I so enjoyed our conversation today and I hope you are as smitten with him as I am. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have an awesome person, wonderful new friend, Waylon Lewis on here. Welcome, Waylon. So glad to be here. So glad to have you. And I interview quite a few people, but I have to tell you, I was slightly nervous in a good way about interviewing you, Aww. mainly because you're just this fabulous, mindful media guy. So I I just wanted to get it right and do my research, but I'm truly honored you took the time to, to be here today. So
1: thank you. Well, likewise, I, uh, I wouldn't do it except I'm a huge fan of you and uh, you saved my in our very brief moments, you have already saved my back, et cetera, a few times. So I really appreciate your work. And I'm highly critical of yoga teachers sometimes and the yoga industry, if you want to call it that. And uh, you're one of the good ones. So thank you.
0: Thank you for that. Well, I want to launch right in. So in some of my research, I knew a lot about you, obviously, but I discovered some things like Dharma Brat. I mean, I actually had to look that up. And of course, now it makes sense to me, like army brat, dharma brat. But boy, tell us, what, for those who don't know, what is a dharma brat and what was that like? Which is always a weird question. It's like, I'm a triplet and people are like, well, what was that like? But you know, you still have perspective of like your own inner experience, but also can kind of relate to what it must be for others. So tell us a little bit about that experience, what a dharma brat is, and what was that like?
1: Well, I grew up here where I live in Boulder, Colorado, which was at the time kind of the biggest center of American Buddhism. Trungpa Rinpoche and Naropa University and Zen teachers running around and beat poets. And there was a whole generation, my parents' generation, of kind of young 20, 30-year-old students. And of course, they were partying and falling in love and getting married and having children. And There was no Twitter then. There was no, you know, it was... In the same time, the 70s and 80s, you know, society had cracked open in the 60s, going from like Mad Men to the whole hippie kind of civil rights movements. And um, the 70s were kind of like that, both recombined, plus lots of drugs and rampant inequality. And it was just a crazy time, really wonderful in some ways, too. Of course, I was a little kid, and my experience of it was That I had a loving mother and that she was an environmentalist and that she liked to do these really boring Buddhist things, which involved meditating for millions of hours. And it was super boring. And everyone who I knew, not everyone, but I mean, I went to school and, you know, I played baseball, but everyone who I knew in that community were like my people. And, you know, I grew up with a lot of those children who are still among my best friends. And, uh, you know, so I think from the outside, it was wild and crazy times and really powerful. It was the first time the East had really, you know, yoga, Buddhism, Eastern wisdom had come to the West, which was obsessed with technology and money and civil rights justly. And, you know, so those two things combined. And as Trunk Rimshay said, the sparks flew. But from the inside, and I think, you know, why I love your question is it was really ordinary and sweet and boring. I had a wonderful mom. We didn't really have a car. We like walked around. We ate, you know, kind of eco natural food at their local co op. And, you know, I went to school and it was very normal in a funny way.
0: So when you went off to college, because you went to the Northeast, correct? Correct. What was it like to go from this somewhat not a bubble, but it sounds like there was a lot of like-minded people around, even if you um, integrated with others with in the school setting, but then you li- literally leave that to go to college. Was that at all a shock to the system? Did you ever feel like you wanted to try on something else? or did it just reinforce your beliefs and your and, you know your background?
1: I'll tell you, I do like 500 interviews a year and you're so much better than me at it. I'm so jealous.
0: Oh my um, gosh, thank
1: you. <laughs> it's such a good question because basically, yeah, I grew up in this like kind of wholesome bubble and Boulder was more normal, particularly at the time it was still affordable and kind of normal people, whatever that means, just working class. But then I went to Vermont and I lived at even more of a bubble. I lived at this place called Carmen Chuling, a... Uh, Buddhist meditation center. And then by day I went to this kind of dead poet society like school, St. Johnsbury Academy. And it was a super weird life, like a kind of conservative old school school and then a weird Buddhist place that again was pretty boring for a kid, you know. For a kid, like Buddhism is the most boring thing. People just, it's not like yoga where you're moving. Literally people sit and meditate for hours like 9 hours a day sometimes meals are taken in meditation as well so but people were very sweet and i lo- fell in love with vermont and i fell in love with my classmates and the i still miss vermont and then i went to boston and that was really the moment where i felt completely out of the bubble i'm in this huge university like i don't know at the time it was one of the biggest schools in the us i was in the second biggest dorm in the us and the first biggest was a military dorm so it was totally impersonal and kind of awful suddenly i was eating pizza hut and you know all this crap in the cafeterias that they serve you like the fake ice cream stuff and i just hadn't really grown up with it and it was i felt incredibly excited to go and then incredibly lonely within like a couple months and i would go back to vermont on breaks vacations, you know, Christmas or Thanksgiving, and I would, for the first time, because I'd grown up kind of with this pejorative attitude about the Buddhism that I had grown up in. I said, oh, it's weird. I was a little embarrassed about it. My friends thought it was weird. And I loved the people and I loved the culture and the rituals, but I thought it was weird and boring. And I had started studying Henry David Thoreau and who helped bring yoga and Buddhism to the West in some ways. And through thoreau, ironically, at high school, I started falling in love with Buddhism. I was like, oh, really cool people thought Buddhism was actually pretty interesting. Maybe I should look into it. And when I became really lonely at school, I would go back to Karmacholing in Vermont and practice meditation with all of my heart and mind. And it was the not the first time, but it was the first time fully that I really my mind changed. You know, I was incredibly Neurotic and insecure and arrogant. And I was a teenager, you know, I was an idiot, you know, like we're all a little bit insecure and wild when we're teenagers. And meditation, I feel like, saved my life. It gave me some ground of sanity and empathy and just being able to be present when someone spoke to me, which as a teenager, I was kind of bouncing off the walls.
0: Well, I was about to say, being a teenager and doing that seems extra challenging because the mind is going everywhere. The body needs come like some kinetic energy. So to ask a teenager to sit in okay. meditation is really challenging. And yet I'm sure it's also so valuable. A lot of kids nowadays would need that, that be that, that ability to hone into that inner observation without so many of the distractions that are present, especially now. Mm-hmm. I feel like that sounds like the seed of a great activist, which you have become, which Mm -hmm. is that you have this, you were raised in the environment to observe, to discern, very progressive. Then you got like a taste of what outside life can be like. You see how others were raised. And again, it's not a judgment, but that were different that weren't as progressive, um, thoughtful, mindful.
1: Well, in a funny way, that word is so, hard. In a funny way, it is a judgment. And it's not a judgment on the people who grow up in it, but it's a judgment on the culture and capitalism and the speed. You know, I'm not getting all like Bernie Sanders about the word capitalism, but I am saying the speed, you know, Netflix, every ad you see on Instagram, Instagram, Facebook, WhatsApp, Twitter, everything in our life, our phones is trying to make us consume things and fill every... Moment of
0: tell us we're not yeah. enough, and that only the only way we'll get better is by purchasing something, by buying something, yeah. by being somebody yeah. different, you know. And yeah, no, again, yes, it's true. It's like, so you had this gift of already having like a strong foundation of non capitalism, and then witnessing what you know the majority of America is probably raised in. But I imagine that gave you a empathy, which is really what activism needs. You can't just have be on your path. You have to understand that everybody else had different pathways in their life. And a lot of it might be rooted in ignorance, just not knowing. So having that blend is a great alchemy for setting setting the stage for an empathetic activist, where you can really speak your mind and talk about the things you want, the change you want to see, but do it in a way that recognizes that not everybody had that upbringing you did. Did you find that to be true? Which part? Well, just that you were able, when you decided to get more into like the mindfulness media, which we'll get into, as it is a form of activism, that you could approach it like, I want to present things the way Mm -hmm. I'd like the world to be, recognizing that this is going to be new for people. And having the patience to give people the space to absorb it, practice it on their own.
1: Yeah, Trung Rinpoche, the Buddhist teacher of my parents said too many, especially teaching in the 70s with his students, he said too many of my students talking to them directly, you get involved in civil rights or activism or environmentalism because you see a wrong and you wanna right it, but you go in there with all of your aggression and your attachment and your ignorance and your lack of empathy And then you just create further war. And you kind of see that with Twitter every day. I see people who I agree with being total jerks to people I disagree with. And you see the people I disagree with being total jerks to the people I agree with. And even the people I agree with are being such self-righteous jerks. I feel like they're creating, they're almost creating a gap. Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: I mean, I've seen that in the animal activism
1: world, which I've been involved in for decades.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. 20 years.
1: Well, it's funny. I had this moment this morning, I think, where I unfollowed one of the most prominent vegan activists, which, you know, I'm not a huge supporter of unfollowing someone you disagree with, but his comment was so out of bounds rude. And I was like, this is not the kind of person I need to learn from. So you know, I have to give Instagram, which I criticize all the time, some credit that I've been vegan for many years. But it's deepened my empathy. Seeing these videos where animals are getting mistreated, or you seeing the happy videos where animals are being rescued, daily gives me deeper empathy. And you know, my dog, who's right here, has actually become vegan. He doesn't care. It's super healthy for dogs. It's healthier in some ways. Cats can't be vegan, but dogs can do it healthfully. And I. Ne- up until a few years ago, I was like, look, my dog's going to eat meat. He's going to have bones. He's going to make, he doesn't care. Like I'm not going to make some weird choice for him, but watching this stuff on Instagram every day, you realize like how sick and siloed is my love for my dog, where I'm willing for my dog to kill 200 animals a year. That's messed up. And since they can be healthy vegan, which people laugh at, but do the research. um, My
0: dog's vegan too. And by the way, most of my kids were raised vegan. One is wow. 18. Wow. I would love and, to ask
1: you about that.
0: Yeah. One is 18 and one is 15, soon to be 16. And I always say they're normal sized. In fact, my son is almost 6'4". He's really tall.
1: Yeah.
0: And, you know, yeah, once you do the research, when you're committed to something and you also recognize that biologically we are omnivorous and we can be herbivores without a problem as long as we have a well-balanced diet. It's we're we're, that's you know the the industry that serves us up animals is a our multi billion dollar corporations that benefit from you know fooling us to believe we need all these things we don't cow's milk if we really put our brain outside of our you know all the white the brainwashing that really happens from such an early age and we're getting milk at school that's funded by the USDA et cetera et cetera once we actually think about it it's like why are we drinking another species milk that's just kind of disgusting and then it's actually beyond once you get beyond that it's it's one of the cruelest sources of animal industry out there
1: but to bring it back to what you were saying you can either take all of this inspiration and empathy and knowledge and hate other people and be a jerk to them or you can take all that and like you did as a mom i would love to hear more about that educate and get them engaged and if you address people as if they're evil they're going to frankly act kind of evil and act like you're evil. And if you address people from a Buddhist point of view as if they're basically good, but maybe they're just ignorant or lost in aggression or attachment, or as you said, the brainwashing, then they can be like, Oh my God. Right. Yeah. Like I always, you know, you know, many people in my life are not vegan and they think it's weird. And I say, well, you know, not to get off on the vegan thing too much, but you know, what's weird is casually killing and torturing first and separating babies from their moms and all this stuff casually. Like you're not even, if it's the highlight of your life to eat that bacon, that's one thing. I still am not in supportive of that, but if you're really appreciating it, maybe that's cool. But from a factory farming, speedy, fast food point of view, it's not even really the highlight of your day. It's just part of every meal. And it's so sad. Like if anyone tried to like, factory farm my dog and torture him and then kill him and take away his children and all that people no. everyone would be rise up in arms
0: right and a lot of the domestic animal you know lovers cats and dogs are totally you know have that uh, that boundary where they compartmentalize and they still right. eat um, farm exactly. animals but they're they're so you know the bottom line is is do they have the capacity to suffer absolutely we know that and so
1: what can we do that would be the kindest choice? So uh, and, do, and do they have the capacity to dance in a field with happiness on their first spring day when they're let out? You see those videos of cows dancing uh, around puppies. You're yeah. like, OK, come yeah, on.
0: I mean, I think veganism is an important thing. We could talk about it all, all the time because it is part of being mindful. It's all the choices you make. We know we're human. We know we're going to err are we're, we're not going to be perfect. But if we can bring awareness and attention to the actions that we we have control over, especially on a daily basis, like the choices of food we eat or what we buy, or, you know, we're not going to, I don't want to buy a skin of an animal. I don't want to buy fur of an animal. I don't want to buy any remnant of an animal. It's, it's not that hard. It's actually very joyful to be responsible for your own, it's your own, harmony within because i feel like i remember when i became vegan it was i had been vegetarian and was very like oh quite sanctimonious about oh i don't eat meat but then i learned about the suffering of uh, you know cage um hens and and the, of course the dairy cows which are mamas of their own and it i just you know jaw open and and i like overnight we became vegan my husband and i and yeah. it was good. like the hugest spiritual awakening That I've ever had because it's like all the hypocrisy that that is deep down. I think again, if we're all, if we do make the assumption that people are good, I think we all live with some hypocrisy, and it's like we can excavate some of that and clear it. What it's beautiful the way you feel that 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 you can fine tune within your own kind of moral compass.
1: Well said. Yeah, I mean that's why we call it the mindful life. We don't call it the perfect life. We call it the mindful life. Like you, you try. And I just wrote this on elephant. Like you don't give up, which is nihilism. You don't hate yourself or other people for not being perfect, which is some sort of utopianism, but you just try and you enjoy it. It's actually, like you said, I love that you said that it's more fun. You know, I always say, if you want to humble a vegan and get them off their high horse, ask them about their plastic or vinyl or things that they buy or driving a car or flying in a plane, all these things that are causing climate change, that are killing birds and fish and bears and whales that are so full of plastic, they think they're full and then they starve to death. And, you know, we're eating a credit card of plastic every week and so many vegans I know don't give a sh- care about environmentalism. They really don't. They're Which like, is so oh. ironic. <laughs> so weird it's so weird or about human rights just to right. bring that back in like where are you buying what from and where is it made and it may feel overwhelming but if you remember that it's not about trying to be perfect it's about trying to feel good about what you use and don't need to buy and buy and yes and then you're just you feel wholesome to me the word is wholesome like yep. that's my favorite word it's such a like boring cheesy word in a way but that's it's so like pure yeah I'm, I grew up with my mom in this wholesome home. She made a wholesome home. It wasn't perfect, but it was, and she was very poor, but everything was like, you know, antique stuff. She got a garage sales and that's still how I furnished my home. And it was simple and she didn't buy that much. She didn't care. And she always gave away things all the time, which irritated me as a kid, because I was like defensive of her. I wanted to kind of almost protect her as this little boy and she was so broke. And I saw her stressed out about money many times. But then every time I would come home, something would be missing. And she'd be like, oh, I gave that to whoever they loved it. And I was like, she was so generous. Mm. And then I had this rich grandfather who in some ways, you know, good person, in some ways was generous toward the end of his life. But during his life, he was so scroogey. He was so miserly. He was so tight because in his mind, he was competing against all these other people and losing against half of them and beating half of them and he wanted more. My mom never never cared. Yeah,
0: so what do, what do the Buddhists teach in terms of that? That's a lot we talk about in yoga philosophy when I'm doing teacher training that that comparison of that there's always somebody that has more and there's always somebody that has less and it's I guess it's kind of like that middle path like being good with where you are. But what are is there any other layers you yeah. can add to that?
1: Well, I think you know exactly what you said, like the middle way, Buddha's path is the middle way. So money, there's no problem, fundamental problem with money. There's no fundamental problem of being rich, but there is the notion that people talk about outside of Buddhism and inside of Buddhism, that being rich is certainly not a guarantee of happiness or peace or anything that matters in life. And as they say in Buddhism, generosity is the virtue which produces peace. So, you know, it is vitally important as a as a social and a civil rights issue that you know we raise the minimum wage, that people like my mom aren't working three jobs just to try to provide, and then losing our home and you know is there is real injustice and real issues with equity, and those matter. So it's not like oh money doesn't matter and money's bad and you know, but if you're wealthier than you need to be, there's definitely a notion of. Well, why don't you support some good things, not just with your like extra little, but like actually really support some things that are needed. Yeah. And, you know, you can alleviate suffering. Alan Ginsberg, who I grew up knowing here in Boulder, the beat poet, he said, he has this beautiful short little poem, or maybe it's just a part of a longer poem, but it's something like, and while I'm here, I'll do the work, which is something like to ease the pain of life for others, something like that. Everything else. Is he says, drunken sideshow. I'm really hacking it. If anyone's a Ginsburg fan, they'll just, that'll sound like nails on a chalkboard. But the point was like, other than helping out other people, everything's just a drunken fantasy. It's all a dream. Life is a dream. Help others,
0: right? Because of being of service, that generosity, like your mother obviously instilled in you and demonstrated it, is actually what fills us up. You know, and, and money can't do that. I mean, we need. Let's obviously, we need money to uh, provide for ourselves, and and like you said, it's not an evil to to want to. You know, have a stability, but it's. I always say it comes back to the why. Like, why do you want all that money? Is it because you feel more powerful, or is it because you want to do something with that money, to be of service, to be generous? And I, I, I think we all need to take a look at that. You know, because again, we're getting a lot of messages about showing like very wealthy people having this amazing time and you got to kind of look at that and see it for what it is which is just fluff you're not seeing what their life is like or how happy their heart is or anything like that maybe they're happy maybe they're not but that is not the source of the happiness
1: no and on the other hand you know there's a thing called poverty mentality in buddhism that we all buy into even if we're wealthy where you never you feel like you never have enough there's a notion of the hungry ghost in buddhism where you have this thin little neck and you can't swallow anything, and you have a big distended belly, and you just have huge eyes, it's called a hungry ghost, it's not a real thing, but it's the notion that you know you wanna consume everything, you have these big teeth, but you can't swallow anything, you can't get any nourishment, and you're starving to death. So there's no sense of romanticizing poverty, which I think people swing between one and the other. Poverty is basically injustice, that it exists, I mean, my mom would feed me rice and popcorn sometimes for, in my memory, months on end. And she would. I would see her cry around Christmas when she couldn't do something. We lost our little home, you know, because she couldn't. So there's no sense of romanticizing it, but there is a sense that she was actually genuinely happy, invested in community. Her life was so rich in so many ways.
0: I think so much of those mentalities, both of them, just like a lot of things in our life that we're driven by is fear. You know, we can be choked by fear, like that fear of like, well I have a lot, but what happens if, you know, I live beyond what I could make and and you just can it can go on and on. And I think it takes you outside of the present moment of absolute just being being content. That doesn't mean being complacent, but being content and ha- and not succumbing to that fear that can it can be about anything. But I think fear is such a motherfucker. You know, it's just like, ah. Yeah. yeah.
1: But it depends how you talk about fear because people hear that and it's true. And they say, okay, I'm going to suppress my fear or I'm going to ignore my fear. No, we shouldn't ignore
0: to... it. We should like exactly. talk to it. Uh, you know what I mean? Like talk but, to your fear. Your... To it. Yeah, yeah. Like I would say, you know,
1: a fear of heights is not irrational. I don't want to fall off a cliff. A fear of having my heart broken is not irrational, but you don't want to get caught up in it. Or frozen in it and I think you know once I was climbing at my climbing gym and this climbing teacher was teaching a kid right by me and he said to the kid like people always freeze up you probably see this in yoga right before they have to do the big move and instead that whenever you find yourself freezing up that's when you breathe through it and then you do the big move and it's so much easier or you just practice you freeze up and you practice 80 times and then you loosen up as you get better And I loved hearing that. I was like, wow, that is like some straight up profound basic dharma, you know, Buddhism truth right here from this climbing teacher who was kind of a, you know, a dirtbag climber guy.
0: I love that. I love that. And that's why I love teaching handstands. It's never about the pose. It's about Mm -hmm. the transition. It's about meeting Mm -hmm. that, those moments where you doubt yourself, where you start thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to fall on my head or I'm going to break my neck. People go, you know, for every person that says, like, under a bated breath, like, Laura, I'm I'm actually just, I can get a handstand, but I'm really scared. They think right. they're the only person. I'm like, you are every person. People yeah. that have any hesitation about getting up, is, it's always about the fear. And it's like, yeah, yeah, it's kind of sitting with it and recognizing that, yes, you need preparation, you need the repetition. But it's also moving into it, breathing into it, because it's somewhat imagined. You know what I mean? It's not, but yeah. yes. Suppressing it, it is not. It isn't, going to be isn't. Deal. like
1: it's still really important, as you know better than me, as a yoga teacher, to say, if you feel afraid of going in this pose, don't just macho your way through it. Right. Like, ask for help. Ask. Like, I'm a six foot three, two hundred pound dude, and I am. Cl- I'm. I used to be relatively decent at yoga because I did it all the time. I practiced with Richard Freeman but I was never like, get to parade. And whenever I would do the handstands, which I was not good at, I would always ask for someone to help because honestly I was gonna fall on my head or break the wall or, you know, I'm a clumsy guy when I get upside down. And like you said, the transition was the hardest part. And, you know, cause once I got into it, I, my alignment was decent and I could breathe and, and you just have a sense of humor about your fear. And I think, yeah, we have such a weird culture around fear where we're like, you know, there was some macho brand for, I think it was like skiing or snowboarding that was like beyond fear. No, it was no fear. And as a Buddhist, that always bothered me. I'm like, fearlessness is not the absence of fear. Fearlessness is making friends with fear and not letting it stop you.
0: Exactly. I love that. I would say to my son when he would skateboard, I would say, know the difference between being reckless and being fearless. Yes. Reckless is like you're just going for the thing and not being, you know, you're just for the sake of it versus yeah. being fearless is, again, yeah, riding the wave of those emotions and, but being present and and not rushing it, not being like that reckless nature. And, you know, because I would watch him do this shit and I was like, ah, you know, as a mom. So. Uh-huh.
1: Well, and when you're 18 or however old he was, 16. He was, oh no, he
0: was, he was 11 at the time.
1: Oh yeah. You just feel like you're like Gumby. Like you can do whatever you want and you'll bounce back. But as we learn, as we get older, that knee injury when I was 11 at the YMCA led to 18 other things, you know?
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. So that's how I am with skiing. I would love, because I learned as an adult. And so I would ski when my kids were learning and I was learning and I have really good body mechanics and and yeah. awareness and everything. So I would be, I was athletic enough that I could do it, but I never felt at ease with it. And I, so, but I, what I said is, this is, Laura, this is what it feels like for people who are trying a handstand. Cause I, I never had any fear about, tra- I taught myself, but I did it from a biomechanical understanding. And so I wasn't thinking about like the what ifs. I was just really curious about how the levers work, how you hold this. So I taught myself at 35 years old. But teaching myself skiing is different. There's a lot more elements of that. And, you know, I just could never kind of just be one on the skis too much. And so, yeah, at a certain point, I was like, you know what? This isn't worth it anymore because I really could, you know, screw something up. Yeah. And my kids got better anyway.
1: Oh, I'm a total coward with, with physical with physical sports, unlike everyone else, all my friends in Boulder, I'm—I think I've always been devoted to elephant, basically. And I'm like, if I'm injured for two weeks, elephant goes out of business. Like we are not—you know—we're big in some ways, but we're also 30 staff. We're very vulnerable to just a couple things going wrong.
0: Just on that note, what is it like living in Boulder with fanatical? Sports-minded people around because what I'm imagining the few times I've been there and I've had some friends that have lived there is that like you're never going to do enough because there's always somebody like up they're mountain biking then they're running and then you know is that does that have any impact on you or you just kind of look at it like wow look at them go that's awesome oh man. yeah
1: no I mean it's awesome I mean I'm a total like weekend warrior kind of guy at best and. uh You know, there's like world-famous cyclists who bike by every day. There's world-famous climbers who I'm friends with and I'm climbing with. I love to, one of my dad jokes for like 20 years has been, oh yeah, I climb with X famous climber because technically I do. We're in the same climbing gym 20 (laughs) feet away. But, you know, and they know me maybe, and I know them maybe usually because it's a community, but um, I'm not climbing with them really. I mean, it's it's inspiring. When I moved back from Boston, there's this culture of like on your breaks, it's slushy and it's cold and it's windy and you just want to get warm. You want to watch some like Red Sox, drink some beer, get a nice good old pot belly going by the time you're 25. When you come here, people are like, oh, lunch break. I think I have time to bike up to Gold Hill. Gold Hill is literally on top of like the mountains, like way up there. And you know, they hop, you know, does your office have a shower? That's what everyone in Boulder wants to know because they're climbing, they're biking, they're running, they're it's just it was actually really helpful. And yeah, there's clicks and there's all that, but uh I have to say everyone was like really supportive. I remember when I was a total klutz, I just started climbing at the age of 30, you know, when I moved back basically. And Half the climbers are like retired in their mind by the time they're 30. So I'm just starting. And I remember like, I'm trying to climb this huge wall, maybe for one of the first times. And this super macho, badass, like punk climber who's super buff and everyone loves him. And he's like a wild and crazy character. He starts like cheering me on, like really loudly in front of the whole gym. And we barely knew each other. And it was it couldn't have been more of an opposite experience than like junior high where the cool kids try to like take you down he was so loving i still remember that and uh there's a lot of support you know i've had really competitive people you know bring me on nine hours cycling rides and show me every little thing and people are just so happy to share it with people. There are people like I had an ex-girlfriend. I never never skied because we had no money growing up. You can't ski if you don't have money, at least not in Boulder. And uh, I remember being like, oh, we're dating, you go skiing all the time. I can finally go and I can take some lessons and you know that would be fun. She was like, no, it's like, no, I don't want you to come. Because you're a beginner. Like I'm not gonna hang out with you. So there is still some people are like that, but Frankly, I get it. Like my best friend, Ryan, would never run with me because he's a world, you know, he I don't know about world class, but he's very competitive and very good and very fast. And he's like, no, I'm not going to run with you. No. So it's not that my ex-girlfriend or my best friend are mean people. They're just, they're at a level where it's not fun for them to-
0: Right. There, there's, uh, they're just going to be shuffling along. Around. Right. But I
1: still I think I'm being a little polite because there's still people like I had- Competitive cyclists and stuff, who had the opposite attitude. They were like, "Come along, I'll teach you everything." And yeah, they would peel off sometimes and just like race up the mountain and down, and then come back and see how I'm doing.
0: I but I imagine that must be just so fun to witness all of this like movement and energy. Again, it's there's especially especially if you compare it to like you were saying, like sitting on the couch uh, up in Boston or whatever, not that Boston people don't move, but you're having such a concentrated number of really, really strong athletes.
1: And to be fair to Boston, I think they have a reputation for being active now. I think in around 2000, when I left, I think culture has really changed. Like I remember in the late nineties, we hopped on some rollerblades and we're running around. People thought you were insane or embarrassing. The culture was like, no, sit around and smoke and drink. And you know, that's cool go to the bar and now the culture I think is much more like be active do this do that so good on us for changing the culture a bit yeah um, yeah
0: all right so speaking of fear what was it like to start up elephant magazine what uh, was magazine and now journal because um you know that is anytime you're starting your own project your own vision uh, there there's got to be a did you have any fear with that or were you just like dove right in?
1: Yeah, yes and no. I, I mean, media's no, yeah.
0: got to be tough. I I imagine. And it's media always
1: brutal. Yeah. Um, it's awful. I think about quitting like once every two months for 18, 19 years now. But like really want to quit. Yeah. For like once every couple months. It's awful. I mean, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter are like nuclear bombs on journalism. And you know, the rise of Trump and The rise of this kind of culture of invective and fake news and and truth is whatever I want to say it is. And I'm always right. And you're always wrong. That kind of culture has arisen in the place of holding up truth. The whole phrase elite drives me insane. You want elite, whatever you want an elite bike fixer to fix your bike. You want an elite auto shop to fix your car. Like, you want an elite butcher if you eat meat to butcher your stuff. You want people, you know, like we're seeing this with COVID, you want to find experts who you trust and respect them. You don't have to know everything. And the idea that you can do your research on YouTube, quote unquote, come on. Yeah, there's things that we should be educated about. But at a certain point, you want people who know what they're doing and who know way more than you and have devoted their life to being a part of that lineage of experts. But um, to get back to the point, um, I actually had a partner who was started. It was called Yoga in the Rockies. This I feel like I heard of that. Sometimes, yeah, yeah, probably not. Maybe honestly. not. It was. He had never published a single one when I came along. He was about ready to give up. Great guy. He was a better business guy than me. But he had like plowed forty k into it in six months of his life or whatever, and it was like. And I went there just to say, hey, let me write a free article for you. I want to get back active as a journalist. i had been working for some Buddhist organizations. And I my idea was like travel the world and bike around and get paid to write about it. And uh, so I went and met with him. He was like, grabbed me by the lapel and was like, be my editor. And I was like, no effing way, because I want to actually have a life and you know make some money on like all this Buddhist stuff I've been doing. And I had grown up poor. I wanted to be able to start a family and not be broke. And I was like counting change at that point to eat on. Mm. And I've done that a few times. And um, yeah, it's not very romantic after like 15 meals of three day old fiber muffins that destroy your stomach. Yeah, so so I said, but I will partner with you 50-50 and let's do this. So we did that, long story short. And then he quit, like right after the first issue, I think. His wife was on the cover, his pregnant wife. And she was like, look, you need to do something that isn't losing us money. You need to help make money. We have a child and I want to have a family. And he was totally supportive. And I always said he was smarter than me to get out. So he left and I eventually changed the name because we weren't really about yoga in my mind. We weren't really about the Rockies. I wanted to be a benefit to the whole world, not the Rockies. And I didn't want to be about yoga. I wanted to be about everything yoga people cared about was my formulation at the time, which is, you know, equal rights, uh, education, recipes, mindful travel, you know, whatever, everything. So I renamed it elephant because of Ganesh and elephants are sacred in India and elephants are vegan and elephants are matriarchal and elephants are deeply feeling and mourn their dead. And I wrote a whole article about why it was my girlfriend actually at the time who helped start all that. She was like our first employee. And we paid her 20 bucks an hour. I'm proud to say back in 2002, and we were broke. We had no money. So if we could do it, then gosh knows, businesses can afford 15 bucks an hour now. And I had this whole list of names, including Anjali, all these names. And I was like elephant, blah, blah, blah. She was like, go back to that one, elephant. And we thought about it and it made, it just felt good. Who doesn't love elephants or so. And you know, from an environmentalist point of view, they're going extinct because of man's relationship to nature or lack of relationship, exploitative relationship. And I say man because largely it's men driving that. And uh so anyway, changed it to elephant, became about all things mindful, eco-fashion, whatever. It's a long list, arts and uh conscious consumerism. And yeah, I was fearless about once I started, I was fearless about. I, it was sort of probably like you, like, you're like, this is something I'm good at. I'm not good at everything, but I'm good at eight out of I'm good at like 88 out of a hundred skills. You need to run a magazine. I could sell ads, you know, as my only staff person, I could edit, I could write, I could work with designers. I could, you know, which is a skill. It's hard to work with designers. If you've done that, because yeah. you're kind of like driving the bus through them and they hate that. And you can't don't have good control anyway. I was good at community, I was good at caring about, I cared about things, but I wasn't good at accounting. I had an amazing accountant, I wasn't good at, there were certain things and I knew from the beginning that you don't have to be good at everything. You can find people, experts, who are good at stuff, and I think that was the only difference between my mom and I. Like, She was so smart and so community-oriented, but she didn't ever have that entrepreneurial bug in her. And I think it was just the sense of like don't let the fact that you don't know everything stop you this is Ask i questions. just
0: want to pause you here because there have got to be a lot of people out there listening who are fearful about starting their own business and i think the what you said is so important know what you're good at and what you're not hire somebody else to do you will reap the benefits of that versus slogging through the things that you're not good at that slows you down that musters your creativity. And it's just so, it's so vital to know what, you know, what you're good at and what you're not.
1: Well, if we're doing essential lessons for entrepreneurs, don't start. Give up. I always say that to everyone who asks for advice. I'm like, do not do it. It is hell. <laughs> and if they say, if they say to hell with you, I'm gonna do it anyway. I say,
0: all right. Oh, you tested them. I love it. You're let like, let me give you
1: advice. Yeah, yeah. But anyone, if you're willing to give up. It is so hard. You're going to have one foot in, one foot out, and you will give up. And that doesn't mean it won't be a wonderful lesson, but you know, typically in business, your other people are going to depend on you and you're working with other people. You're making promises. So we had like, I don't know, $50,000 or it was probably $10,000 in ads that we had promised to print when my partner quit. And I said, look, you know, if you want me to keep going and honor these commitments, I'm taking ownership. I'm not going to be split 50-50 with someone who quit, someone who was the business guy. So it was really hard on our relationship, but we got through it and we're friends today.
0: But I was like, I'll walk
1: away. Like I've lost my life savings on this, which were not much. And I'll just start my own thing. I don't need this complicated crap. But if you want me to continue, it's mine. And I, you know, that experience of having him quit early on is another lesson which people never listen to me about, but is do not have a partner, do it on your own because Amen. I drive myself crazy. You probably drive yourself crazy, but we can't break up with ourselves. We're stuck with ourselves, even the Beatles and yeah, they were the greatest band ever and they created all this amazing stuff. So in a way their example disproves my point, but they broke up. Like if you want something to continue beyond your lifetime, don't have partners. If you do have partners, um, Good luck. They will encourage they will <laughs> you to not, to not take risks. And if you don't take risks, you will not survive in this world because things change. You know, we were a magazine, now we're online. We were dependent on Facebook, now we're not. Facebook is useless. You know, things are changing constantly. Twitter was important. Now Twitter isn't important. Now it's important again. We put gay marriage on our cover when we were a yoga magazine, in quotes. And Whole Foods, which was our biggest distributor at the time, said, you can't put that issue in our grocery stores, not because they were against gay marriage. I always defend them a little bit, Um, but because they were against sex, violence. They had sex and violence in the same category. So I was like, okay, well, it's not sex, but we are, it was a sexy cover, but there was no physical anything Mm -hmm. uh, showing. It was just a couple embracing. It was two couples embracing and kissing. And... um, Anyway, at the time, if I'd had investors, they'd be like, "Dude, you're a yoga publication. You have to sell X number of copies. You're losing your biggest distribution point. You're doing a cover that has nothing to do with yoga, which I would challenge. And you're insane because even mainstream magazines at the time weren't doing gay rights covers with this sort of blatant celebrate celebration of civil unions at the time was the was the big argument. So I was like, tell with that. like, this is something we care about. We should do it. And it's awesome. And that's all I need to know. You can be very simple. You don't have to justify everything. And also boards are useless. Advisory boards are amazing. I think they're the opposite of useless. You can ask advice and they don't own you. Oh, I I totally
0: agree. I have, I'm this, I have an advisory board, but I have myself. I totally agree with that. I think these are actually really important things to consider if you are starting your own business is yeah. I think partnerships are tough. It doesn't matter how well you get along with somebody they are not inside your head you're not going to have the same views on things and it could really slow the boat down um, if not you know blow it up <laughs> you know, so i yeah. just feel like if it's yes it can be harder if it's only you but also so much more fulfilling because you have kind yeah. of the start and stop point
1: and it's not only you like i i literally i mean i've been lucky in boulder we're named the happiest town in the us and all those awards and it's for the reason of community. I've been lucky that I could bike around, walk around and constantly run into multi-cabillionaires who have made their money making tofu in a bathtub in the '70s, and then it became the world's biggest organic company. And you know I could constantly ask advice. But now with social media, all of us can ask people's advice. And I think if you find that you DM people, you message people, you email people, they'll respond. Like, I don't get any questions ever from anyone about how to start a media company. Maybe I get like one a year at most. I mean, number one, I think that's because you'd have to be stupid to start a media company today. (laughs) But number two, people are not getting that many questions. Like how many young yoga teachers say, look, I don't wanna talk about doing a teacher training, I don't have any money, but how do you do these 10 different things? Or maybe like, how do you do one thing? Do you mind just helping me? I'm sure you would reply. Oh, totally. And I do they get, some, I do get some they of those questions. Genuine.
0: Yeah. I do get some, you know, questions about like, how yeah. did you get started? How would you yeah. recommend, especially in my teacher trainings, which are pretty large and intimate I know at the same I time. recommended
1: your teacher training to my girlfriend, now fiance. Oh,
0: You're ahead. one of the
1: few, I mean, Amy Apollity, Richard Freeman, you, I'm sure Cindy. there's a couple others, Cindy Lee, who I would recommend to someone who I loved.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. What an honor. Okay. So we could talk forever about elephant journal media and all that. I was going to actually ask you about like what this last year has been like, but I, I have a feeling that could be a whole hour long thing. But in summary, this last year, I mean, what do you think really rose to the surface and became so clear, not only being in the pandemic, being at kind of stay at home, having this global impact on our economy, our, our politics, I mean, all of the racial and cultural crap that came to the surface necessarily. And like, what have you personally learned from it And how? and what kind of lessons would you say that it, it might've taught us and how can we apply those lessons going forward in our activism, in our daily lives?
1: I mean, I'm probably gonna be a little depressing, but I think- That's okay. The pandemic was just a warning shot for what we will go through every single year with climate change. I think climate change is going to devastate economies around the globe. It's gonna cause mass pilgrimages from your home to another safer place. It's gonna which will involve typically through history, mass rape, mass warfare, mass warring over resources, lack of security, all this awful sort of like walking dead kind of future is coming and it's coming fast, unless all of us grow up real quick and say, this is a real thing. I'm heading, you know, to use a different analogy, it goes back to like our discussion around fear. You can get frozen in that fear and just say, I'm gonna watch Netflix and eat ice cream and for, pretend it's not happening. Everything will be fine, everything will be fine. You're rocking in the corner, you're an insane person. Or you can say, Solving climate change before it fully gets here is actually fun. I don't leave my lights on. I turn off my vampire electricity stuff, you know, little lights all over your house. I turn the thermostat down a few hours a day. I keep my hoodie or my cardigan on. Like even my girlfriend, like when she moved in, people have this expectation that you can walk around your house in your shorts and a t-shirt all year long. That's not historically an expectation anyone has ever had in cold climates. Like turn the thermostat down, turn it off at night, vote. I mean, I don't really care about the whole liberal conservative argument, but vote for people who take climate change seriously and equity seriously. And that happens to be the liberal folks more. If we lose one election and go in the wrong direction for four to eight years with climate change, we are cooked. And it is already here. It's not a future tense thing as you know, but a lot of us think, even me think, oh, it'll get worse, but it's, you know, flooding in Hawaii, like, you know, snowfall in Texas. That happened because the Arctic got so warm as you may or may not know, that it broke through the Arctic, you know, cold circle and it just collapsed down into Texas. This whole world is effed. So I think going vegan is a huge way to, to help reverse climate change i think you know we either have to become empathetic and responsible and caring and activists and and vote avoid all this fake news crap that's on whatsapp and facebook and twitter and everywhere instagram and invest in independent mindful media frankly invest our attention because truth is going to set us free or the alternative is we keep heading toward the brick wall at 90 miles per hour and we will Every single animal in existence, every single human and future human in existence, every flower and tree is on the line. Like the whole, and people, I just wrote about this on Elephant. People are like, oh, the earth will be fine once we die. Like, no, it won't. We're going through the sixth extinction right now. We're taking half the animals with us. We're destroying the planet. We are creating untold suffering. It is not okay to be nihilistic. It's also not okay to be, you know, pretend everything will be fine. The two extremes aren't helpful. We actually have to help. And the good news is helping is actually fun. It doesn't mean your whole life has to be like, you're out, you know, fighting the fire with a fire hose. It means you're using glass instead of plastic and, you know, shopping locally and, you know, shopping locally should be something Republicans care about just as much as Democrats.
0: Right, Um, it's gonna help small businesses, What we're seeing is that
1: Democrats and Republicans alike don't give a care. And they're fine to support Amazon, which is black holing, sucking up mom and pops all over the nation. And it's funny, MAGA Patriot on Twitter, M-A-G-A Patriot, just retweeted an article that where I was criticizing Amazon. And it was like, okay, this is one issue where we're all aligned, I hope. But not really. The whole world is supporting Amazon over local. So get active, get caring, and get relaxed. Like, Breathe. You know, we don't need to be freaked out.
0: Well, this just cycles back to our very early on conversation, which is this is what we're here for—to be of service. And isn't it like we could look at this, like you said, like as as a fun thing? It's horrible. We could be superheroes. Like we are in a place in history that is so unique, and instead of like burying our head in the sand, we can say, what can we do? And maybe we won't live to see the end result. I'm sure a lot of us will be able to see some, but isn't it like the fullest expression of service to actually care how our own individual acts can improve the global community and of course the environment. I think, like you said, we have to look at it in a not in a positive way, but in a lighter way because with any sector, it's like like I said back back with animal activism. I've seen the animal activists who go so dark that they're bitter, and they're, you just become paralyzed because it's and I don't blame so them. massively. It's, so it's it, if you think about it, even for a little bit too much, it it, it just guts you. It's so yeah. horrific, and I and I'm hoping sooner than later we are going to look back at this time period in this 20th century in particular and think what we did to animals. At such a systematic way that is it can we can, our brains can't wrap around it with such a dark place in our human history of humanity like we just separated yeah. our own heart from money and, and to be
1: positive there like some comedian had a joke that's dark humor that said time travel is a white fantasy if you're african american if you're black in america if you're a person of color you don't fantasize about going back in time no Like we have a long ways to go, but equity has, as you know, John Lewis said, if you feel like giving up, it was way worse when I was young than today, like so much progress in veganism in, you know, Michael Pollan, who I've interviewed, one of my idols as a writer wrote one book, Omnivore's Dilemma and farmer's markets were collapsing. There were very few left. And in the next 10 years after his book was published, they increased by like 10,000% Amazing. They are no longer endangered. The whole farm to table thing came out of one book. Yeah. Um, yes, a million people were involved for, you know, Alice Waters, tons of cool people were were involved in this movement, but that book triggered it, you know, as a tipping point. And, you know, so in civil rights, in equity, in veganism, in so many different areas, yoga being available, things are waking up. But... It's not enough because climate change is, as Bernie Sanders says, an existential threat. Any That means something very literal. Anything you care about, video games, movies, travel, equity, all of it is on the line. Yeah. All of uh, it.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I think we can end this by saying like, stand up and do something, right? And do it with love, generosity, kindness, all the things, but we, we all need to do our part in saving our world, literally
1: saving yeah. it. And it won't do anyone any good. You know, there's this complacency thing, so you can leave that behind. But you can do, like we talked about the climbing with the big move, do it with breath, do it with empathy. This vegan guy who I unfollowed is a major influencer and I, I have really appreciated him in the past. There was some post on some vegan channel about how Kamala Harris only eats meat After 6 p.m., if the whole world did that tomorrow, that would be two thirds better, which would be two thirds less animal suffering. This vegan guy said something about how, like, she's comfortable murdering animals after 6 p.m., she's evil, something like that. It was super heavy and aggressive. And you're like, whoa, now, like, I'm vegan. Yeah, I wish she was vegan, but this is such a huge improvement for someone to even think about it because we all grew up with cheese being a product, not an animal thing. With meat being a product, we just thought of it as normal hamburgers. You know, I've eaten 10, 100,000, I don't know, hamburgers. Am I evil? Like, kind of, I feel bad about it because it's murder and it's torture, but it's ignorance. So, you know, people are waking up and it's our job to educate. And on Elephant, we don't mandate only vegan recipes. It's pretty much only vegan but what i find more important is like what eleanor roosevelt said is get people to walk one step at a time and if they do that and it's genuine great
0: oh, she's doesn't one mean of you're my not favorites. impatient
1: yeah what's that
0: i said she's one of my favorites
1: oh she's one of my idols
0: a lot. yeah me too oh wow well this was such a treat I could talk to you for hours. Um, I'm sure many people will want to have you back, so maybe we'll do a reunion. But And we didn't even get to talk about your biggest news, which is you're engaged. Yeah. You stayed single for many years, and then some lucky gal. Tell us really quickly about like what that feels like.
1: Well, that's the other answer to your pandemic question. The pandemic, we were on our fifth, fourth or fifth date or something when the pandemic closed and the quarantine closed. And we literally went from our fourth or fifth date to living together for eight days in the beginning of the quarantine. And then she went back to her family in Denver, her mom and her brother, I think just her brother at the time, they own a place together. But um, the pandemic really forced me to like, it grounded me. It, it was like I was sent to the corner, you know, all of us were for a year. So I hope, you know, 2020 makes us all slow down. You know the lesson of twenty twenty shouldn't be this social media thing like twenty twenty sucked. Twenty twenty, just to go touch on the climate change thing again, is it wasn't just the hottest year in history; it was the coolest year of the next hundred years. Because so, of
0: how little people were traveling. Well, they even I loved seeing all the different yeah. animals that would come that had you know would yeah. resurface because humans weren't around. I feel like we were inside looking out at actually. A oh. world without us and it was actually kind of it was pretty beautiful yeah
1: so if we can slow down if we can take some responsibility people are so macho on social media like don't shame me well it's such an overrated word like i do want to be shamed if i'm doing something awful trump was a shameless human being that's not a positive thing you don't want to be shameful but you want to accept some responsibility and grow as a human being that's called being adult and uh Pandemic slowed me down and and I turned around, I looked at Michelle, and I said, Holy cow, I have a real human being. Like in Buddhism, we would call her like a peaceful warrior. We have a real human being here who is sane, who is grounded, who is kind, who is funny, who is vulnerable, who is. And I said, you know, wow. Because I've wanted to, you know, get married and have children for 10 plus years. And I had frankly given up. And the pandemic. I think, kind of, you know, pegs me down. And uh, I woke up and looked at what I, what was in front of me, which was this wonderful human being. Hmm.
0: What a gift and so deserve it. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to meet you both someday. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise.
1: Well, hopefully she'll do your, maybe I'll
0: bike out to Boulder. You know, my husband and I biked cross country, so we, we, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so
1: one of my best friends bike tours Ryan Van Duzer, and I, we're going to bike tour. So we'll all have to bike tour together. Ah,
0: would love it. That that was yeah. talk about like really learning how simple lifestyle is what really brings you such happiness. You know, just carrying the stuff that you can carry, and that's it. And that's yeah. It's uh, again not to you know. It, it just really uh, we we need less than we think. As long as we have you know the yeah. stability.
1: I know we're trying to wrap up. My goal is to do a vegan, plastic free bike tour, which I feel like I could, you could help me with the vegan part because so much of it is you're going to gas stations and you're getting food and you know, how does that work to be vegan and plastic free on a bike tour? Anyway. I
0: would love it. Let's, I, I will meet you in that challenge and maybe we'll do it together. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much. And for all of you listening, as always, I'm pulling for you.